DW, World in Progress. With Sarah Stephan. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Sarah Stephan. In Myanmar, over half a million people have been displaced amid a surge in fighting between the military and armed groups. This adds to the 2 million people who are already displaced since the military took power in a coup in 2021. At first, we just protested. And when the military marched into our region, we defended it against them. After the third clash, our whole village was burnt down by the Junta army. And the search for better work abroad that went horribly wrong. We hear from people who survived all that. In a way to get us to get us to fear them, they would mistreat we saw them mistreating a few of their Chinese workers. Some were electrocuted, we saw people being electrocuted, others were beaten until they were bleeding. These stories and more coming up now on this week's episode of DW's World on Progress. And we start the show in Myanmar. The democratically elected government of Aung San Suu Kyi was ousted in a military coup in 2021. Since then, ethnic minority armed groups and pro-democracy fighters have been battling against the junta's forces. Over 2 million people were already displaced within the country. Now it's estimated that half a million more have been displaced. That's according to the UN. Recently in October, three ethnic minority groups teamed up in northern Shan state and launched a surprise attack against the military. At the beginning of December, Myanmar's junta chief called on ethnic armed groups to find a political solution. This week, China said peace talks had been held. Another meeting was reportedly slated for later this month. China is a major ally and arms supplier of Myanmar's junta. On Wednesday, those ethnic minority groups reaffirmed they would fight to end the country's dictatorship. It's not just ethnic minority groups fighting against the military. Take the Saigang region, where most citizens belong to the majority Bamar ethnic group and are Buddhist. That region is often referred to as a, quote, hotbed of resistance to the military rule. Some of the first battles occurred in this northwestern region bordering India. Since fighting erupted, the territory has been carved up by anti-junta forces and the military. But away from the front line, much of this hotbed of resistance is made up of displaced civilians struggling to survive the conflict. The United Nations tallies over 800,000 displaced in that region alone. That's over a third of the population there. Justin Higginbottom visited an IDP camp in the Sagaing region and sent us this report. I'm crossing a river on a small ferry with anti-junta forces in Myanmar's Zagang region. We're headed to a camp for the displaced in the area, and we need to cross here to avoid nearby villages held by the military and their militias. This river is called Mitamit, Mitamit River. And after the coup, whenever the, the, the military uh, arrests civilian or defense force, they will torture badly and and they killed them, and the dead body was thrown in this river. He says this river, once a source of life in this lush valley, is like a cemetery now. After the military throw dead body here, the food, they don't eat fish at all from this river. Fish is really big, getting big here. 
Since taking power, Myanmar's military has razed around 75,000 homes in the country. That's according to monitoring group Data for Myanmar. More than two-thirds of those have been in the Zagang region. Ye Chan is one of those that lost his village. He can just see what remains of his home from the hill where we're standing on. He and his neighbors took to the streets after the military's coup in February of 2021. At first, we just protested. And when the military marched into our region, we defended it against them. After the third clash, our whole village was burnt down by the Junta army. He says he joined a local defense group and helped hold off the first assault using a single-shot hunting rifle. Their resistance only numbered around 100 at the time. When the army returned in force, they didn't stand a chance. Sometimes they kidnap people from other villages and use them as human shields to advance. Their jets also bombed our village. Families are separated and on the run. The 37-year-old is now an administrator at this IDP camp. Around 1,800 people live here. They're almost totally reliant on donations. The lucky ones have abandoned swaths of their family's farmland for subsistence farming on small plots, just trying to survive. Mang Si is one of those surviving. He and four friends took up arms against the military soon after the coup. Not long after that, a landmine put shrapnel into his back. I didn't think it would paralyze me. I just treated the wound with the help of my comrades, thinking that I would be back on my feet to fight again. He never regained the use of his legs, and he doesn't have the money to travel to specialists in India. The major hospitals in this region have either been destroyed or are in military control. There's virtually no medical care here. Since we are trapped here for now, I have to stay put. I don't know when it will end. Now my wife has to take care of my needs. He says the worst part of his injury isn't physical. He's ashamed for burdening his family. He can't work. He's incontinent and relies off his wife and daughter. His teenage daughter doesn't have time for school. He stares blankly as he explains this, which you might think is due to depression. But he says his eyesight has also started to fade in the last couple of months. If his daughter could attend school, it would be in a one-room class tucked between dense vegetation at the camp. Volunteer teachers say the classes are limited in size and spread out to avoid detection by the military. Any large gathering, even a classroom, could become a target. Kin Sa Pyu is one of those volunteers. Today she's teaching around a dozen primary school students. She left her history studies at a university to protest the coup. She's not alone. The number of students who took a national placement exam for university this year was only one-fifth of that under the civilian government. She says it's hard to wrangle a classroom of children without experience as a teacher or proper supplies. She says the military burned down the village's school to the ground, along with precious textbooks. The civilian national unity government has raised funds for education outside of the military's reach, like this classroom, but support is spread thin around the country. Although with limited supplies here, they still manage to have English lessons. Where are you, Anai? That is? My name is Pue. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. These students are the lucky ones. They're getting some schooling. 
The World Bank says just over half of those aged 6 to 22 years old are enrolled in any education at all. Ye Chan, the camp administrator, says they don't have weapons to defend themselves against the military assault. But they do have explosives from resistance groups, so they mine the outer edges of their camp. UNICEF recorded over a death a day last year from mines. Children were over a third of those killed. Even then, residents are worried about infiltrators. Resistance against the military is widespread, but it's not total. This is still a civil war that can pit neighbors against each other. Villages are often classified as being pro or anti-junta. Our people have been suffering for years for the sake of revolution. We need food, medical supplies, raincoats and mosquito nets. I want to ask for these from the National Unity Government so that we can endure more in the future. The tide may be finally turning in this war. Anti-junta groups across the country have made recent gains, including in the Zagang region. After nearly three years, those at this camp are ready for a victory, to go home and to rebuild. Justin Higginbottom for DW in Myanmar's Calais Township. Looking for a better life, that's what motivates many people who will go abroad to work. In the Philippines, those overseas workers often take on jobs such as domestic helpers, caregivers, or nurses. They send back home money to their families, trying to carve out a better life for them. Going abroad to work is encouraged by the Philippines government, and there are a ton of agencies advertising jobs. But some of them run a kind of bait-and-switch scheme. They promise one job in a safe country to then send them someplace else. That's what happened to Lucy Kayamba when she was trafficked to Syria. Yelena Gostoli met her and other women who are trying to rebuild their lives and fight for justice. Ma! Hi! Do you want to For 10 million Filipinos who live abroad, a daily WhatsApp call is all they have to keep tab on their children's homework whether they've eaten or if they got into trouble. Parents get used to seeing their children grow up through a phone screen. Filipinos work abroad as nurses and seafarers, as maids and construction workers. Jobless with three children to feed, back in 2011, Lucy Kayamba decided to leave for a job in the Middle East. She says an agency registered with the government offered her a job in Kuwait. The agency arranged for her papers and flight. But once at the airport in Kuwait City, she was informed she was to board another flight to Damascus, Syria, where war had recently broken out. And I think it's legal. It's not illegal because I have a lot of orientation like that, a training. So I think it's good. It's very good agency, but no. Because when I was in Kuwait, Somebody told me you were going to Syria. What? Why are you send me in Syria? The agency told me you're going to Kuwait. Why in Syria right now? I know Syria is always uh, like have a bomb, a guerra. Like call it guerra. Why they go send me? But I don't have choice because I don't have money that time. How can I go back to the Philippines? I don't have any money. I only one peso. I don't have one peso. One dollar. I don't have one dollar that time. So I, how can I go back? 
And then he told me, you don't have choice. You will go there. Lucy stayed in Syria for 10 years. She finally managed to flee via the Philippines embassy in Damascus two years ago. Now 43 years old, she lives with her brother in a low-income neighborhood in Makati, one of the municipalities of the sprawling capital. Here, recently built high-rise condos and gated communities sit next door to crumbling houses lying below tangles of electricity cables. The Sari Sari, or convenience store, set up by Lucy's neighbors on their doorstep, is blasting music. Her apartment is at the end of a humid, unlit corridor filled with the scent of fried onion and the adobo marinade she is cooking. The front door is always open to let some natural light into the small reception room, dominated by a poster of the Virgin Mary. <laughs> Lucy hasn't seen much of Ida Siddiq and Maria Alcala since they all left the Philippine embassy in Damascus in 2021, but it's clear they are close. For more than a year, the three women shared a small room at the embassy's emergency shelter, where they became stuck after the pandemic hit. They only have uh, maybe 20 beds, mm. and we have 50 people. So the, in a one bed, we have mm. two people, like that. You know, we really miss our kids. We need to talk to our kids, or our family. But they don't have phone. Oh, it's this crazy thing. It's almost two years, I, like me. Almost two years, stay there, no phone. Between 2019 and 2020, they were among 54 women who sought help for repatriation from the Philippine embassy in Damascus. Upon arrival, they say they were asked to leave their phones at reception, a standard procedure for visitors, except that these women were anything but dropping by. 26 of them are now taking Philippine officials to court and have filed a case at the Ombudsman in May over the neglect they were subjected to while there. Living in the embassy's basement, in some cases for more than a year, cut off from their families and the outside world, with no information about the status of the repatriation or allowed a phone call. Then Ambassador Alex Lamadrid has been removed from his post. He's blamed the delay on the Syrian side and the difficulty of processing visas. Their story only became known when some of the women managed to escape one evening, retrieving their phones and, according to Lucy, jumping out a window on the second floor to broadcast on Facebook Live about their situation. Ida, who is from Mindanao in the south of the Philippines, stayed at the emergency shelter for a year and three months. At one point, my mother even asked a fortune teller for help to find me. My mother and my children were so happy that I came home alive. A single mother from the country's Muslim minority, she left the Philippines hoping to help her family. She met a recruiter from her hometown online and decided to live with their help on a tourist visa rather than through official channels. When we arrived in Malaysia, we were still at the airport when Muhammad took our passport. I think he was Syrian. The youngest of the four women who were with her in Malaysia was 15 years old. She has lost contact with all but one of them. 
She says that every time she'd ask her employers who were business people for her salary, she'd be shouted at. Maria also left with an illegal recruiter on a tourist visa. When I got to Abu Dhabi, somebody met us at the airport. I don't remember his name. I stayed there for two weeks. Then he sold me to a certain Muhammad. I only know his name because I overheard them talking on the phone. Then the guy took me to Dubai. Then when I arrived in Dubai, Muhammad picked me up. He took me to his house and I worked for him for four months. She says she didn't receive any salary and was soon sold again. Until she ended up in Syria. I stayed there for two years and four months. The reason why I stayed so long is that Maher, the man I worked for, threatened to beat me and hurt me. When it comes to my salary, I was told I'd get $400. But my employer said she'll only pay me $200 because Maher already took the other half. Collectively, the unpaid salaries of the 26 women amount to more than 120,000 U.S. dollars. For decades, the Philippine government has facilitated migration abroad as a strategy for development and to bring much-needed foreign reserves into the country. Remittances from Filipinos working abroad hit a record 36 billion U.S. dollars in 2022. That's nearly 9% of the country's GDP. The government also offers professional training. They teach you how to cover the bed, how to put the pillow, how to clean. Yeah, that's a crazy thing. Yeah, <laughs> that's a crazy thing. <laughs> yes, because of course you know how to put the pillow, you know how to put the bed sheet. <laughs> do, do they tell you uh, how to sign a contract and what contract no. you should sign? No, no, you just sign the contract. Uh, in actual, I mean, you go tomorrow, you sign right now. No need to read the paper. Just sign it. Joana Concepcion is the Philippine chairperson of Migrante, a global coalition of migrant workers that is offering legal aid to some of the Syria victims. Especially those who were recruited as minors or trafficked as minors um, and are not familiar with the law. They're, they don't know their rights. Uh, they don't know the process. Um, they did not really receive um, uh, support uh, from uh, the Philippine government agencies uh, for the filing of their cases. So this is a challenge for victims of human trafficking to file cases. Um, they uh, experience intimidation um, and harassment uh, from individuals connected to their traffickers. The Filipino government tightly regulates migration. For instance, it requires agencies that hire overseas staff to register with the government. But illegal recruitment is still rife. Many of the recruitment agencies offering job placements abroad are located in a district of Manila not far from the scenic Manila Bay. Almost an entire block is lined with advertisements for catering jobs in Saudi Arabia or domestic work in Kuwait and Qatar and nursing in Europe. Dozens of people wait outside every recruitment agency, many holding folders or brand new uniforms. Most agencies here reassure prospective workers that have been vetted by the Philippine Overseas Employment Administration, the government body that issues licenses to private employment agencies.
Located on the second floor of one of the towers is an agency called HRHA Manpower International. There are about a dozen people inside, both staff and candidates. This is the agency that hired Lucy about 10 years ago. Recruitment agencies or manning agencies for sea-based migrant workers who, are, who still undergo um, the licensing process um, still commit violations, uh, uh, labor violations, um, whether or not you know, um, they have been licensed. Um, there are several who've been licensed for years um, and they have pending cases against them. Migrantes Concepcion says it's hard to get justice. So migrant workers who are uh, been fortunate enough to be assisted by, you know, by lawyers or by organizations to file cases um, of uh, labor violations, um, human trafficking. Uh, still, there, there's many challenges in their access to justice. Oftentimes, the companies or the agencies continue to operate. The Department of Migrant Workers recently set up to coordinate the work of all agencies aimed at overseas Filipino workers, and the agency HRHA Manpower did not respond to requests for comment on this case. Promoting migration has been a deliberate policy of the government since the 1970s. At the time, the country was facing a huge bill in World Bank loans that led to austerity measures and high unemployment. The institutionalization of overseas work has been a policy of every successive government since. But it comes at a huge social cost. Before leaving to Syria, Lucy used to live in Davao, the largest city in the southern Philippine island of Mindanao, with her husband and three children. But upon returning 10 years later, everything had changed. Her children still live there with her husband's new partner. My youngest son, he don't know me. He don't know me because when I left, he, he was only one and a half year. For 10 years, he don't know, really don't know me. He asked me like, you're my mom. Like that, you know. Since coming back, Lucy has been pressuring officials and has worked with NGOs, attending rallies and meetings. While she waits for her case to be resolved, as well as for the financial help available from the government for returning overseas workers and victims of trafficking, that so far she has only partially received, she wants to help others. She organizes what she calls Know Your Rights workshops in her community for former and prospective overseas workers, telling them how to travel safely and what to do if things go wrong if they're abroad, as well as what assistance they're entitled to upon return. In the Philippines, those who migrate are known as Bagong Bayani, which translates as modern eras because of the sacrifices they make in order to lift their families out of poverty. But for Lucy, this expression means very little now. Ilenia Gossoli, DW, Manila. What these women in the Philippines went through also happens elsewhere, people being brought to other countries under false pretenses. Just like what we are about to hear from Kenya. Inika Mules has more in this story by Yulia Lin. Mercy has a three-year-old son, Jason. The fact that they are both alive today borders on a miracle. 
Six years ago, Mercy decided to travel abroad. A placement agency promised her she would earn good money. Mercy was 23 years old at the time. Like many young people, she saw no prospects in Kenya. She was supposed to work in Qatar as a cleaning lady at the airport. But when she arrived, things turned out very differently. I found myself in Lebanon and I was to do house help in Lebanon. They just lied to me. They will tell you that uh, you are going to do a different job so that you will accept this offer because all what they need is money from the employer side. For Mercy, this was the beginning of her suffering. She works for a family of six. I could uh, wake up at 4 a.m. and sleep at 2 a.m. or 1 a.m. I could uh, work without sitting down. At her new place of work, there was hardly any food. At best, she received dry bread and some tea once a day. After a few months, the family began to beat her. Winnie Mutevu knows of many such cases. She works for the Kenyan organisation HART, which campaigns against human trafficking and supports victims. She says black people are especially at risk for suffering under forced labour. The sad reality is, as much as we talk about forced labour, sometimes we forget that there's also racism, where they look at you as a black person, you never really get tired, you never bleed, more or less, you're a strong person, you can be able to do anything and everything without having to struggle. The Kenyan government recently announced new figures in parliament that underline that mercy is not an isolated case. Grace is currently in Saudi Arabia. The 22-year-old's family wanted her to leave Kenya to earn money. Grace isn't her real name. We've changed her name for her protection. But she's one of the lucky ones. Her employers, a married couple, allow her to use her mobile phone. At one point, they didn't pay her a salary for a few months. But that's since been settled. But as Grace explains, others like her went through hell. And mostly the kids... The kids, they mistreat you or they abuse you physically, emotionally, everything. But human trafficking isn't just a problem in Arab countries. Petki K has a university degree and was supposed to work in Thailand. Instead, he landed in Laos. Their work involved using photos of young women from the internet to fake love affairs with men in Western countries, ultimately getting them to invest in cryptocurrency. But when Petke heard that a customer tried to withdraw money and the account was empty, he realised that the love affair wasn't the only lie. When we started asking those questions, they started being a bit tough on us. In a way to get us to, get us to fear them, they would mistreat. We saw them mistreating a few of their Chinese workers. Some were electrocuted. We saw people being electrocuted. Others were beaten until they were bleeding. With the help of the Kenyan embassy, he managed to escape, but he still felt ashamed. A lot of my friends knew I had gone to work abroad, and they expect once you're back in the country, you have money. So you come to a worse situation than you left in the country, and they see you and they're like, ah, just leave him alone. This guy went abroad, and now he's back and he has nothing. What can he do? Mercy also managed to escape from her employers. Another Kenyan woman took her in. Mercy accompanied her to work, hoping for a new chance. The women take a taxi and get out in the middle of the street. But Mercy realised something wasn't right. 
I realized it it is prostitution. The guys started uh, stopping, and uh, most of them wanted me. These people already know when there is a new girl on the road because they always they are always there. I, I I said by myself I will not do such kind of job. Nevertheless, she gets into a man's car. She pretends that she needs to go and buy condoms, and uses this chance to flee. Mercy then lived under a bridge until a man approached her and promised her work. She was desperate by this point, so she went along with it. After four months, he gave her an ultimatum. I didn't do this because I wanted to, but when I looked at the circumstances surrounding me, I found that I don't have any option. I have it said that I go and become a prostitute, or I just stick with this one man. Two months later, she becomes pregnant. She tried to abort the pregnancy by taking an overdose of medication. Both her and her baby survived. Today, Mercy says she wasn't ready to be a mother, but after a while, that changed. One day, Mercy hears other Kenyan women protesting outside the consulate. She joins in. She wants to go home, but not without her son. The consulate arranges a lawyer for her. <laughs> for survivors like Mercy and Petki and others like them, telling their stories serves to draw much-needed attention to the cruel realities of human trafficking. It exists. It has many facets, and it impacts far more people than many realize. In a commute with that report by Julia Lin. That's our show this week. Thanks for tuning in. The studio technician was Jürgen Kuhn. I'm your host Sarah Steffen. Bye for now.